Coming up on this week's show, Amiga games come to the Evercade. Why fans are worried about the Silent Hill remake. And we chat gadgets and gizmos with the Nostalgia Nerd. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one book you need to check out, The Art of Point-and-Click Adventure Games, a sumptuous 528-page hardback coffee table book packed with the very best pixel art, classic scenes, and the games that define that genre. And this month, they're also giving away a World Cup wall chart with each order, designed by legend Stu Cambridge. And one pound of it is donated to Cancer Research. So you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 350, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm, or should I say, chilly welcome to our last show of October. <laughs> Happy Halloween, boys. Can't help yourself, can you, Dan? <laughs> Happy bonfire night. <laughs> you know me and Joe love our Halloween games and stuff. I don't know if you've been uh, fishing any out, Joe, ready for this weekend. I'm actually, I've decided, because you know I always talk about Jack in the Dark, which yeah. is that Alone in the Dark 2 small demo that's kind of my go-to halloween game i've also found a list of a couple of other games i want to play do you remember adam's family yeah which that was an incredible game oh i, 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 I thought you meant the show in the film i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> now the video game it's kind of like a mario kind of rip-off so i said i'm gonna sit down and play a bit of that maybe on, uh, on sunday evening after our patrons hang out so uh and i know you've took your daughter and um, pumpkin picking over the last week as well yeah yeah we were pumpkin picking last week my wife absolutely loves halloween so she really gets into it. We've been watching a lot of spooky films this last kind of week. Um, we we actually spoke uh, the other week as free. We were talking about how I've never actually played the Silent Hill games. So that's gone out there now onto the stratosphere. So um, I do actually have the first four on PS1 and PS2. So I might crack one of them out over the weekend and uh, scare the bejeebas out of myself. Ravi, you're, you're not a big spooky fan though, are you? No, because um, I, I, I like Bonfire Night, but yeah. also I've just had Diwali as well this weekend. So oh, yeah. That, that was pretty awesome. Just uh, tons of fireworks and uh, yeah. seeing friends and family, which is really nice. Family time, fireworks. Yeah, but I, I do need to get some sweets in for trick-or-treaters just in case. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember last year? Last year we did our 300th episode of the podcast live, didn't we? Yeah. In my, uh, in my studio. And we'd recorded that on Halloween, do you remember? And the door yeah. was going off like every five minutes. Was, I don't know what... It was going I, you off. know, I never get any. And your area just seems to be full of people it, knocking on it, the it door. Was, it was going off every five minutes. And my daughter, who was not long-turned one, was over at your house, wasn't she? And mm. she was like dressed up as uh, Donald Duck answering the door. With your wife, wasn't she? <laughs> my wife. Absolutely loving it. I don't know how we did that that night without getting disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> we do pick them. But here we are, you know, a year later, um, 50 episodes on now, and uh, lots to talk about as well. You mentioned Silent Hill, actually, we're going to be talking about. Um, there's been a, r- a remake of Silent Hill's been announced, a few of them actually, and there are some concerns that we need to talk mm. about in just a moment. And, of course, we have an incredible guest on the podcast as well. Now, um, I guess this week is someone who's been on before, but actually, I didn't realise quite how long it had been since we had a catch-up with Peter Lee, the Nostalgia Nerd. He was last on a full episode with us in 2017. Wow, <laughs> long time ago. 
five years ago. And uh, since then, I mean, obviously, he's got an incredible YouTube channel, but also he's a, he's a published author as well. Um, now, just released his second book. So I had just what I describe as a real nostalgic throwback to the 80s and 90s. His new book is called Gadgets, Gizmos and Gimmicks, A Potted History of Personal Tech. And, you know, today we've all got mobile phones in our pockets and they kind of do everything. But the chat that we have kind of goes back to the days when your pockets and bag would be bulging with all manner of different gadgets to do various different tasks. I mean, you remember those days when, you know, you'd want to leave the house, you think, oh, I need my MP3 player, oh, I need my Atari Lynx, or I need my digital <laughs> camera, I need my Walkman, you know, we all I, remember I doing that. I still do but... that, I've got, I've got my music I was going to say, Ravi yeah. still goes around with his disc player, man. <laughs> That's it, but uh, there was also some useless gadgets. I, I remember my dad got this one gadget, and it was like the most pointless thing in the world, and it all it did was cause trouble. It was um, a watch that would uh, speak the time. <laughs> So, right. It, like, what's the point in that? You know, you just look at your watch and you see the time. It only takes a few like seconds. But um, it'd have this watch and it would go bong. The time now is, and it would say the time like the speaking clock. But the problem was it would activate itself at certain times. So, you know, you could be in a wedding, you could be like on, oh on the bus, and it was just like I, I cracked up. I couldn't uh, contain myself every time that went off. And it would always be like the most inappropriate moment. Um, and that gave me years of entertainment, that, um, <laughs> that watch. Yeah. So you talk about that happening back in the day. I've got an Apple Watch and Siri does that to me at the most inappropriate times. Someone said to me the other, the other day, they asked me something and I was like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Then, then Siri on my watch just repeated, yeah, that's fine. And the guy just looked at me like, what the what, hell? What are your worries, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> So it's, uh, it's not something that's left as that kind of thing. But I mean, even when we do our patrons hangouts, I mean, we regularly reminisce about not only consoles and computers, but it, like you said, mini displays often come out. We talk about our first mobile phones and Apple Newtons and that kind of thing. I mean, I remember when I first saw an Apple Newton back in the day, that concept of a, a PDA, you know, personal digital assistant before smartphones did it all. And I think it's an era where now people are getting nostalgic for that, I think, because phones just do everything now. Mm. And it kind of feels like, you know, the, the art of these dedicated devices that did one thing well, or not so well. You, you know, I'm, new, I'm actually running gone. my phone in, uh, in grayscale, in like monochrome at the moment. And, you know, it's really nice just actually not having all the colours on. It feels like it's kind of gone back to like being a gadget or being like a Kindle or something like that. Um, yeah. You're going to get a stylus for it and do really bad handwriting. <laughs> just start smacking the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to be talking about all those classic gadgets and gizmos and gimmicks from back in the day with our special guest, Peter Lee, the Nostalgia Nerd. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now let's jump straight into the news stories. Of course, it is the spookiest weekend of the year, the Halloween weekend. Uh, you mentioned Silent Hill and uh, there's been all this hype and we've been talking about it as well. The uh, Silent Hill remakes now konami have confirmed there are I mean, after months and months of rumors four brand new silent hill games on the way now there is an opinion piece on the metro mm. which is a daily paper here in britain that i'll link up in our show notes but the author of this is not feeling too optimistic that these remakes are going to be any good yeah so um it was announced the day we did it this happens all the time you know the big news is announced yep. the day after we record so you know, this news piece right now isn't Silent Hill 2 remake has been revealed because of we're by this point a week, eight days late to the party. But that was announced last week, you know, 
after, like you say, loads of rumours. We were talking about the rumours um, actually on the Patreon bit um, mm. about two weeks ago, weren't we? You know, how they'd kind of updated all the copyrights and their website domains and stuff like that. And It's been rumoured for years as well. Been, it's yeah, happen, it's been rumoured it? for years, but, you know, we've, you kind of, if you know where to look, there's been movements being made the last kind of couple of weeks, couple of months. Um, so obviously the big one is the Silent Hill 2 remake, So, which Silent Hill 2 is regarded like one of the best horror films of all time at least for the PS2 anyway. 21 years old now. It came out in 2001. And graphically, for the time, stunning for the time. Absolutely amazing looking game. Really, really atmospheric, scary game as well. Um, Not played it myself, but watched my friend play it. Know plenty about it. Um, And as you say, like three other games have been announced as well. But people, like you say, and the Metro article... I'm moaning a little bit about it. Well, because of- this is just just to make clear, this is a reader. Um, so what they do in the Metro is they have like readers columns okay. that they put into Game Central. Okay. So this is a reader of the Metro called uh, Mori. So it's kind of his opinion, Ex- but they've yeah. put it up there as an interesting that, piece. Yeah, and, and I've, mm. that's not the only one I've seen. I'm, thanks for clearing that up. But I've, I've seen quite a few people moaning about it, which is a bit frustrating. But at the same time, I can, I can kind of see the worry. So obviously Konami have not really been making games themselves like recently they're just they're kind of publishing games aren't they and they've been outsourcing games or they've been doing game compilations so like castlevania compilations of the games they made in the 80s and 90s and contra compilations etc and then concentrating on pachinko machines and stuff like that in japan um so they have they're not developing it themselves and they did develop the original four silent hill games maybe more themselves before they kind of in the mid 2000s started getting you know outsourcing the development so the developer team they've got is called the they're called bluber team i believe i'm pronouncing that right and you mm. know they're the developers who've been announced for it and they're on the announcement video like the ceo of bluber is on there saying how amazing this is that they've got the silent hill ip and they're going to be remaking silent hill too and you know when they were in the initial discussions like it was like a dream come true and all this kind of stuff but the reason people are concerned about it is they haven't I'm not saying they've they're not saying they've got a bad track record, but they haven't got much of a track record. They've they only were established in 2010, and they've only got about ten games under their wing. And I've not played any of them personally, or barely heard of any of them. So we've got Layers of Fear, which apparently is pretty good. Layers of Fear Two, Layers of Fear Inheritance, and then the Blair Witch game, which I haven't played, and Observer, which I haven't played, are their biggest games, which are all horror games. At least, so they're in this. And it's look at look at look like the reviews on here as well. I mean, they talk about that. There's no code, which um, apparently got got a review score of three out of ten, right? In the metro, so it looks like uh, yeah, the, the author of this, it just seems like maybe just doesn't like their games. Yeah, they're talking about that laser fear is overrated. Yeah, mentioning this piece here, but again, that's subjective. I suppose it's, it's all subjective. But personally, I've seen quite a lot of hate about the fact that the, the CEO of Bluebird says, you know, you can see just from the graphics of the game and the graphics on the facial expressions and the, uh, you know, the uh, motion capture we're using and using Unreal Engine 5, like how amazing the game is going to look and the emotion of the game and, you know, because it is an emotional game and the, the Silent Hill games are mainly about like emotions and love and kind of thing like, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the undertones of the games and stuff like that. And people are just saying, oh, we don't think the graphics look very good, but I, I think they look excellent from what we've seen so far, people are just kind of moaning that they're like, oh, Silent Hill 2, it's just going to be like a new Resident Evil, like it's just going to be an action-packed, like from behind kind of game. Personally, I'm excited. 
like I say, I've not played Silent Hill 2. It's my plan to play it this weekend. Mm. But I, I think it looks good. You know, going off a tangent there from the retro kind of thing, but, you know, it's based on a retro game. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think the graphics look good? Do you think it looks creepy? Well, I've uh, never played Silent Hill 2 myself, yeah. so uh, this could be a good opportunity to kind of check out the franchise and, and explore it f- further, like we were actually saying about Silent Hill the other day. So um, mm. it seems quite good. Maybe this is like your new Resident Evil, Joe, where, you know, you talk about Resident Evil a lot. And now yeah, maybe I'm Silent talking Hill. about Silent Hill a lot yeah. now, yeah. They're of similar ilks, aren't they? So I think bottom line is it feels like people, a lot of people are moaning, but we've not even got it yet. <laughs> like, yeah. We probably won't even get it for like another year. It's just people moaning. And it's just like, I know I'm not diehard Silent Hill fan like I am with Resident Evil, but I like to think I just take these things for what they are and just try to enjoy them. Um, yeah. I know not everybody's like that, but yeah, just a lot of hate at the moment. All I'm seeing is a lot of hate. I'm not seeing too much positivity about it. It's a bit unfortunate so far. Yeah, especially with a franchise like that. I mean, mm. again, you know, it's not, not really anything I've played before, but something I've, I've had my eye on playing and might play some of the classics this weekend. You know, we're now feeling all weeny. Maybe the three of so, us should uh, get on the couch, <laughs> put the lights off, put the blanket round us and just play it by candlelight. <laughs> Ready for the Sounds remake. nice and cosy, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very timely for this time of year, I think, you know, talking about this. So um, we'll wait and see what it's like. I mean, you know, it's not like we haven't been disappointed by some retro remakes in recent years. So I think maybe the retro community are probably right to be skeptical sometimes mm. but you know give it a chance i think so uh, we'll keep an eye on that story and link up that opinion piece in our show notes at the retrohour.com now this is something you teased last week ravi after you and i attended the massive amiga 37 show out in germany the amiga games or the amiga company which i must be honest i didn't even know is a thing anymore has apparently hooked up with evercade and have announced a partnership yeah, it's it's very complex. There there is an Amiga company, uh, Amiga Corporation. So uh, they they were previously Amiga Inc. and I think Amiga Inc. are part of them. Now there's been an ongoing court case that has gone on for decades. It's probably one of the longest <laughs> court cases in like um, you know any video game company or any any kind of computer company. But they have the rights to uh, license games now. And um, I was talking with Mike Batalana at Amiga 37, who is the um, owner of, of the brand at the moment. And they've been licensing stuff. So um, there's the A1200.net cases. There's a tank mouse that we've covered as well. And they're all kind of official Amiga products now. But of course... And they were involved with the A500 Mini, weren't they, as well? Well, yeah, yeah. The, the A500 Mini, they were kind of essential for. Because the thing with these uh licensing that they've got in the deal at the moment is you need the kickstart roms to run amiga games according to the courts they can't actually show the underlying operating system but they can provide something that acts as a game launcher so um you know the a500 mini essentially it didn't run the amiga operating system officially and uh, that wasn't kind of seen in it but it was a games launcher. And that's what this is going to be. This is going to be a partnership with Blaze Entertainment. I spoke to Mike and uh, could be wrong here, but they were saying that there's going to be free cartridges oh, wow. coming out for the Evercade. And uh, it's going to be a collection of companies. So, um, you know, if you look at the A500 Mini and the games that were actually released on there, you had Team 17 games. Um, you had the Bitmap Brothers as well. Uh, Adventure Soft. So Which a lot of these already exist on the Evercade. I think now there is like Bitmap Brothers collections and stuff on there already, and Team Seventeen, I believe. Yeah, so and and I think maybe it's they have uh, 
you know, a, a, like a partnership with Amiga who will then license the kickstart ROMs and the technology to enable them to then play it on the Evercade, if you know what I mean. And that's right. kind of part of the deal. So they act like the technology provider or like the middle agent. And then it means Evercade can come up with one of these awesome compilations because Evercade is like such a good device. I really think it's, uh, you know, and it, and it really shines with that uh, compilations and those kind of, chosen games that they have on them that's that's its real strength um they also announced that uh they're going to be doing ant stream as well so there's going to be um amiga titles there's already a few on there but they'll be officially partnered with uh ant stream which is pretty awesome to to see some actual movement coming out from the uh amiga company uh what what do you guys think about this i think that makes much more sense to me now because i'd seen this everywhere and, you know, there was a lot of articles leading with pictures of, like, you know, Zool or uh, Speedball 2, that kind of thing. And people, you know, kind of naming which Amiga games that they'd like to see on a compilation. But I was thinking, well, hang on, these games were never made by the Amiga company. You know, they didn't make cannon fodder. Yeah. <laughs> like Alien Breed, you know, they were third-party companies. So basically, they're going to be allowing Evercade to use the ROMs to make collections of games from other companies that they're licensed from those companies. Yeah, and and Mike right. said, you know, they don't have the rights for the operating system at the moment. That's all within the core, and he said this on stage. And he said he would love eventually the Amiga Workbench to go onto one of these consoles. So imagine if the Workbench... <laughs> I couldn't imagine that on the Evercade, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, came on the Evercade. <laughs> that, that could become a, a kind of OS that you could play around with on the Evercade or be, like, limited in that environment. Um but yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd fancy word processing on the Evercade. <laughs> but maybe on the VS that you could put on a bigger screen. But I do think it's good because I can imagine Amiga could probably go to these companies and go, right, we'll get you a little bit of income if you, you mm. know, put your games with us, use us as the middleman, and then we kind of put it on all of these devices and onto Antstream and maybe the Amiga Maxi, which is a maybe in the line we'll we'll see if that ever comes you know the A500 maxi i do think that's really good news because i mean we've talked about this for years haven't we on this show that you know we always said why don't they just make a an amiga on a joystick with like you know 20 of the best games on there that's all people want and i think the sales of the A500 mini which have apparently been really good i was chatting to the guys when they were there in germany um probably the best-selling Amiga device, you know, since the days of Commodore. So I think that proves that there is a big market for, you know, that nostalgia market. They just want to sit down and play these, you know, the, the 20, 30 best games they had as a kid. And it makes sense that, you know, they could release these compilations, I think, you know, for the Evercade if they did, like, 20, 30 best of Amiga games. Well, that's the thing. Like, that Evercade, I think, will do it quality. Like, you know, yeah. it'll be a good delivery. But also the strength of the Evercade is being able to explore other systems' libraries. Mm. and and yeah. just getting them on the carts and getting good collections of like some of the you know really nicely picked games so it should be interesting to see what comes out and uh, if there's any special features that they've added to them or you know like extra information on the titles and stuff yeah so um yeah very good news so i think you know giving us a chance to play our favorite games easily is always a good thing so uh we'll link up the announcement if you want to read more about that but that's pretty much all it is at the moment we'll uh hopefully get a list of games before too long now, this next one looks really interesting. Now, I've got memories of, you know, playing Leisure Suit Larry as an underage lad, <laughs> going downstairs asking my dad questions to try and get past the 
adult quiz at the start to prove that you're over 18, pretending it was for my school homework. Uh, but this is amazing. Now, if you're a fan of those Sierra-style games, there's a new engine that presents those classic Sierra-style titles in a way that you've never seen them before. This is probably the best modern imp- implementation of kind of modern tech onto an old game that I've ever seen. I rate this so much, much better than the kind of 3D ones that you had with, uh, you know, the VR systems and stuff. So this is a, a new engine that's come out called Retro Voxel 3D Engine. And um, they've done some examples. So there was an example of Police Quest on there. And um, it's it's it basically takes this old Sierra look of the old AGI games and turns them into true 3D. And the way that it does it is it, it finds the individual objects in the games and then it kind of creates this depth in there, which um, really gives the environments this kind of total different look. Now, they had a little example of Police Quest, but what they've done is they've taken a game that was um, released in 2004, um, which was called Enclosure. So Enclosure was kind of done in that style, and I guess they've done that because they probably don't have the the rights. So they've gone for a Sierra-style one. Um, yeah. to kind of show how this engine really works. And uh, if if you see the video of this, it's it's just mind-blowing the way that the difference of the game looks just with this simple, like, depth perception. And the aim of this engine is that it's going to actually come out. And, um, you know, you, you're hopefully going to be able to run it and do conversions of all the Sierra titles. Like, you could do Leisure Suit Larry in this, in this style. And... Uh, so I, I could go into Lefty's bar in Leisure Suit Larry and it'd be three-dimensional. You could walk to the back to that toilet and the cubicles will all be 3D. And, uh, the guy who's passed out yeah, outside yeah, the toilet, it, it'd it be would, three-dimensional. It would have depth, yeah. So Enclosure is the first kind of example and you can actually download that at the moment. But there is a, a GitHub holder at the moment which suggests that um, this guy who's done it, um, Mousimus, is going to actually release this as a as an engine that's going to be available for this tech um what what do you guys think have you seen the trailer video on it yeah and i've got to admit when i first watched it at first i thought oh it's just zooming in and out a little bit until you do get that proper 3d perspective there's a certain scene when he's like uh, walking through a bedroom and you notice the depth of the bed and he can walk behind things and stuff so yeah it's a bit trippy actually the effect i think isn't it it's weird to look at for me because of how high def it makes it look as well like it's yeah, like yeah you know like the depth of it is it kind of like i don't know what the word is but it weirds me out like it's like it's as if it's like you know when you put new glasses on for the first time when you first find out you need glasses <laughs> or like a stronger prescription that's what it looks like all of a sudden everything looks zoomed in but you're like oh wait it's because there's there's better depth perception kind of thing that's that's what it reminded me of but i think it looks really cool you know what it reminds me of a little bit you know in um cinematography there's that effect, the dolly zoom. Yes, yeah. That kind of put the, the, the vertigo shot or the Jaws effect, as they call yeah. it, don't they? It reminds me a bit of that in some ways. <laughs> that kind of doesn't quite feel real. It's, it's a bit bizarre looking at I it. I guess what they've done is they've kind of done it so it detects like this is a sprite, this is an object and stuff, and then mm. kind of draws it within the space because to be able to do the whole game must be a, a real kind of challenge. And I can imagine if you use this with also upscalers and kind of a you know, clean up titles and stuff like that. It, it, it could, it, you know, you could create a total different one, but also it feels, 
it feels i don't know it feels a bit like a comic book to me or it feels like they're slightly made out of cardboard yeah you know, it's I, like, I it's that, like yeah. a kind of cardboard box you if, you were, if you were to make a diorama of these games yeah exactly you know, or a pop-up kind of book thing. yeah a yeah, pop-up yeah. Book, yeah. Uh, yeah of a, of a sierra title but like the worlds for me like just seeing the police quest one was like I've I've spent a lot of time in that police station on police quest trying to mm. do stuff and just to be able to walk in the different depth and uh, yeah go in the showers and all that kind of stuff it's just like wow this is like a, a total new game and I I just love this I think it's such a smart way of remastering it and um, it, it seems a lot nicer than other stuff that I've seen and you know there's a huge range of titles and adventure titles in this engine as well. Yeah, so hopefully they'll uh, get around to modding it. It would be amazing if you just yeah load up your old ROMs or something and it just kind of converts it on the fly. Oh God, yeah, yeah, that which, would be you know. huge. And then imagine if they started doing it for other like like point and click titles as well and stuff like that. And uh, you know, suddenly you could have these two D ones like uh, you know Simon the Sorcerer or something, and you could get like a full kind of three D depth in there. That would be amazing. <laughs> Yeah, before you know it, you're there in virtual reality, stuck in Leisure Suit Larry world. Or even Monkey Island. <laughs> yeah, it looks really cool. So if you want to see the uh, the demo so far, um, I'll put that in our show notes. And the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. Now, even though you're a bit of a Halloween humbug, Ravi, I do hope that you've got a costume ready for Sunday. Because it is going to be <laughs> our patrons hang out this weekend. Halloween special. I haven't got any sound effects for that one. Can you give me a spooky laugh, please, Joe? Oh, a spooky laugh. And oh. I can't even do it. <laughs> I was going to be like, I can't. That's, I don't think that's, speaking, that's more pervy. <laughs> <laughs> it's because when you were going to, I thought you were going to say, like, give us like a, a ghostly sound or something. That'll do then. Give, give us a, okay, I'll do it again. Do us a ghost sound this time. Okay, so this weekend is going to be a spooky Halloween hangout. Woo. Sounds like a Bird really bad firework. <laughs> So we do this at the end of every month, and this is where... Uh, Joe doesn't do sound effects on it, don't worry. Don't let that put you off. This is where all our patrons get together, and uh, we have just basically a virtual pub hangout, isn't it? That's what we do. Yeah, that is hitting the nail on the head there. Hanging out with mates, you know, having a beer, having a having a can of pop, whatever, you know, you want, it, you want to have. Just chatting retro, you know, chatting retro games, retro films, retro tech, as you said earlier on. You know, some people like to get involved. Some people like to just come and watch. That's absolutely fine. But yeah, I I really look forward to it. You know, last Sunday of every month is it's definitely one of the one of the things that keeps me going with the retro hour, which I really really love. Yeah, so we're going to be nerding out Sunday evening from eight pm till ten pm UK time. If you're joining us on Patreon right now, you can get an invite to that. All patrons are welcome, and also you get access to our gold members and above to an extra podcast that we do each and every month called the Retro Hour. After Hours. Now, this is where we do a different theme every month. I think the most recent one we're talking about, Light Gun Games. Um, we're going to record a brand new episode that hopefully will be out by the time you join this weekend. Um, what's our subject this time? Have we decided what I mean, we're doing I this weekend? I think it was yet? between accessories and arcades, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, we were thinking yeah. top arcades or top kind of like game accessories. But like, I don't want to spoil it, but that like we were like, what do you class as an accessory? Do you know what I mean? Ooh. Like you could, you could really be like, is the thirty-two X for the Sega Mega Drive an accessory, or are we talking the Sega Super Activator? Scope? Are we talking the Sega Activator? There's my number one. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we just kind of nerd out a lot of our memories and stuff as well in the After Hours podcast. And if you unlock that, I mean, we're approaching thirty episodes of it. So if you join us on Patreon now, 
a lot of listening. You'll unlock all of the back episodes of that too. And you get the normal podcast uh, early if I can get it edited in time. You get it ad-free every week. And also we give you extra patrons, exclusive content in every single episode. You get a few extra news stories as well. So all of that is waiting for you if you join us on Patreon right now. And of course, all the details to get involved in it and join our community are on our website at theretrohour.com. And for joining us on Patreon, you will get inducted into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame! And a massive thank you to our latest members. Welcome, Pasquale Stromnes. Aaron Sasbo. Lance Patodal. And Andre Bjarkerson, who all joined us on Patreon over the last week. Your support is hugely appreciated. And if you'd like to join the Retro Hour patrons community, all the details, as I said, are on our website at theretrohour.com. And hopefully we'll see you for the patrons hangout this Sunday. Right, this week's special guest, Peter Lee, the nostalgia nerd, coming up in just a couple of minutes' time. Before that, did you have, ever have a Game Boy Advance player for your GameCube back in the day, Joe? I never had it. Um, I always, always, always wanted it, and I still don't have one because they're stupidly expensive now. Um, but, you know, they don't just make your GameCube an actual cube. They do a lot more than that. <laughs> they uh, they allow you to play, you know, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance games on your GameCube. Did you did you have one, Dan, or do you have one? No, I, I'm kicking myself because I did see one, God, probably around eight, nine years ago for about 25 quid. Yeah. And I didn't pick it up, but it didn't have the software with it. And I know the software, I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a video that we'll talk about in a moment, but from what I've seen on eBay, the, the, the actual disc that goes with it goes for actually more than the player. Yeah. So the player itself, probably about 40, 50 quid these days, but the disc, mm. um, I think with the disc, it can drive it up like another 80 to a hundred pounds because you need yeah. the software, the disc to play for it to run. Well, or you, or you did until you now. You did until now. So, um, yeah, that segues nicely into this next uh, this next part. So, a lot of people, I've not really seen much about it until I started looking into it, but a lot of people say the, the, the picture from the Game Boy Player, although it is really good, the Game Boy Player on the GameCube, could be better. It, it has a bit of a dull screen, and it's not too sharp. And compa- if you compare it to the original Game Boy Player, the Super Game Boy for the Super Nintendo even though that's playing, obviously, you know, black and grey original Game Boy games, it's much sharper looking than the Super Game Boy, which is playing Game Boy Advance games. And, you know, I, I've been looking into it and I've been watching this fantastic video by a YouTuber who I've never heard of until now, a YouTuber called Good Vibes Gaming. Um, really excellent video. Essentially, how to get a better picture out of it and kind of goes into a lot of detail. Um, and essentially, the majority of the video is a guide on how to do this and sort of how to hack it so that you can actually get a much better picture out of it. But my understanding, Dan, you might be able to help me with this, but my understanding is essentially the reason it doesn't look so crisp is because of or so sharp and the colour is a little bit dull is the Game Boy Advance plays in 240p, mm. but the GameCube forces it when you use the Game Boy player into 480p, but it isn't the Game Boy player that does that. It's the disc that's forcing it into the 480p. And it's the software. The software that is forcing mm. it into there. Um, so the Game Boy Player, essentially what that does is it just makes your GameCube into a Game Boy, into a Game Boy Advance. Mm. It is, it's just a Game Boy Advance that clips onto the bottom of your GameCube and then, the, and then the GameCube is just the run through into your TV. But the software disc is what allows your GameCube to think it's a Game Boy Advance. But the game, you, the 
the part of the game cube is what forces it into the 480p. So it zooms it in and it's not as sharp or as nice as it should be looking. Usually with um, Nintendo stuff, like I've done a lot of modding on mm. it and stuff, it's always usually software-based as well. And there's yeah. sometimes like limitations within the software. And there's also stuff like strobing as well. I think that's yeah. one that's yeah. one one issue that the, the reason that they've actually put it in is, uh, you know, um, if, if you're going to release something like that publicly. But to be honest, I didn't know about this uh, Game Boy Advance player until we started the... Uh, the podcast, you know, I, oh, really? I knew about the Super Game Boy and everything. <laughs> but you didn't know and I've never seen, never seen one in real life. So, uh, oh, there you it, go. It I don't think they're that common me. over here. Yeah, I, mm. I didn't see very many of them back in the early two thousands. Um, not as many as I saw, you know, the original ones. But it, you, you were right there, Ravi, because apparently Nintendo actually put a filter in there to reduce strobing. Because you know, you're watching it on the TV, the chance of epileptic fits ah, is a lot okay. higher. So, so, ah. so maybe this. Um, this modification should come with an epilepsy warning. Yeah, yeah, well, do it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it does, it takes it out. So, I mean, basically, the games are not going to look, you know, darkened and yeah. blurry and muddied, really, because they, they actually muted the colours quite a lot to reduce that strobing effect. But, yeah, so what this is, I mean, this video is really good, and it's basically a guide mm. that not only shows you how to launch this new bit of software, um, which is called um, Game Boy Interface, that replaces the official Nintendo software that you run on the uh, Game Boy Player, uh, but also it kind of shows you how to hack your <laughs> your, your GameCube. Yeah, it, it, and it looks like it's it's very simple actually. It, it, it isn't is it? really simple, and I can't believe how simple it is. So when you turn your Game Boy uh, your GameCube over, you take the bottom off. It's got three ports on there. One of the ports is yeah. for the Game Boy Player. One of them is the broadband adapter, and one of them isn't used. And the one that isn't used, you can actually use a chip called an SD2 to SP2 chip, which essentially is a... that You can buy them on eBay. I've even looked it up. They're like a pound, two pound. It essentially plug, you can plug it into the bottom of your GameCube, and then it allows you to run micro SD cards into the mm. chip, into your GameCube. And essentially... Yeah, so then you can... You have a launcher then, You don't have you? a launcher. And essentially, what you do is you can put a a kind of like homebrew emulation software on there called Swiss. Um, and long story short, obviously it is more complicated than this with like kind of like pulling the files over there and stuff like that. Uh, but essentially you can run the, the Game Boy Player, so Game Boy Interface, the new Game Boy Player, the homebrew, through that launcher. And it fits mm. with, it will fit on, you know, on the bottom of your GameCube with the Game Boy Advance player, you know, with the Game Boy Player on the bottom there. And essentially, it gives you that better, you know, better screen, and you can then play around with it, and you can zoom in and stuff. So essentially, it gets it to run in the native 240p, but on your TV, and then you can you can zoom it in slightly, so it fills up the screen a little bit better because you get the big black border. Otherwise, um, yeah, and there are three different versions. So I mean, depending on which game you're going to run, yeah, you might want to try a different one because I mean, like you said, then it, I think in certain games, yeah, the, the aspect ratio is not quite mm. as kind of hard coded as a Nintendo version. So you might have to tweak it a little bit, but I mean, in terms of graphical fidelity, yeah. I've got to say, looking side by side, I mean, the, the third party Game Boy interface software makes the games, it's night and day, isn't it? It's it so yeah. sharp. It makes it so much sharper and it actually reduces any sort of latency that was on the Game Boy player as well. So there was a little bit of latency on it. Um, as it, as it was that. probably doing the processing and stuff, yeah. uh, that would yeah, have slowed yeah. it down. I Blurring guess. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it it improves that as well. Um, there is a whole. I'm making it sound a lot easier than it is. His video does make it look very easy, um, but there is a lot in between where you kind of have to download a save file to boot it, and you can put that save file like on a GameCube memory card, 
um, which, you know, you can just buy off eBay. He gives links to like people who kind of sell them on eBay ready to launch kind of thing. Um, but you can do it yourself and kind of load it. And he does say it is a bit easier on the Wii because um, obviously the Wii is, for all intents and purposes, it was a, it was a GameCube. You know, it, yeah. it, it had perfect backwards compatibility because it had a GameCube. <laughs> it was a GameCube technology kind of thing. Um, so he says it is a little bit easier to do on a hacked Wii. Um, than a hacked GameCube, but to actually hack a GameCube, off the bottom, you know, kind of like watching this video, it was so much simpler than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, I, I just want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> never mind the game. Never mind the Game Boy. Yeah, player. never mind the Game Boy so. player. Let's just hack our GameCubes now. <laughs> yeah, so a very cool guide and uh, definitely a YouTube channel worth checking out if you want to learn more about those kind of the, the Nintendo mods and hacks and stuff like that. So I'll link that up and the video in our description or at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about YouTube, actually, um, of course. Legendary developer Masahiro Sakurai, who was uh, you know best known for being the creator of Kirby and Super Smash Brothers, he's kind of reinvented himself recently as a YouTuber, and um, his channel is actually really popular, as you'd expect, because he's given away kind of the the secrets to developing his games, and he's already got five hundred thousand subscribers. Oh, wow on YouTube, sharing, you know, thoughts, tips, snippets of his own history in the industry. Now, it is a Japanese channel, but there are subtitles in England as well. But this video has been doing the rounds all over because it turns out he's been talking a bit about the development of the N64 Smash Brothers game. And he's shown off the first ever footage that we've seen publicly of what was the prototype to that, a game called Dragon King. It's um, interesting because Nintendo tend to, you know, hide all of this stuff and uh, having a developer actually putting a channel out and showing like, you know, early builds and stuff like that is is really interesting and like, you know, showing the development of the titles and stuff. It's a, a big rarity, so no wonder he's, uh, you know, gaining in popularity really quickly. Does he still work for Nintendo? I am a little bit like, how have Nintendo not come after him yet? Do you know what I mean? Like, like mm. you say, Ravi, he's like releasing all this like, but I guess if he made it and he technically owns it maybe or he owns the original maybe, footage and stuff yeah. like that well he, he actually worked for um, Hal Laboratories Hal Laboratory yeah. Yeah, who Nintendo published their games you know they're very closely tied but yeah. I don't think he was ever actually a, an employee of Nintendo itself oh, there you go. and he left he left there back in 2003 yeah so I mean nearly 20 years ago now yeah okay that makes sense then but yeah Dragon King the fighting game I mean I don't know if you guys are big Smash Bros fans or you know you're obviously aware of Smash Bros but it I've, is. I uh, modded the hell out of it. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember you showing us that. On the Wii U, I do all these crazy Smash Bros. <laughs> you were mods. Playing as like, like Peter Griffin on it and stuff, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I remember. And now. I can totally imagine that um, this would be something that fans would recreate. And I'm sure they're probably working on a Dragon King uh, <laughs> fighting yeah, more, game mod at the moment, you know? More than likely, yeah. But yeah, he shows the prototype off, and it is essentially just a normal battlefield with four colored kind of like stick men like three kind very of looks basic like freedom. virtua fighter or virtual yeah. yeah i was gonna say yeah. that virtua fighter yeah the original yeah there's actually a blue one a red one gray one and a green one but it is clearly smash bros if that makes sense like the way they all fight mm. the way they all move and the fact that their health bars are the percentages and you know you smash each other off the side so you the higher the percentage the further they fly off fly off the screen and stuff and you have to knock each other off the arena but it's that early. There's no, there's no even any items. There's no special moves. It's just the punching and the kicking, um, and the jumping around and stuff. Um, and obviously, way before 
they decided to put all the different Nintendo mascots in there. So it's funny to think if this just continued as it was as Dragon King, it would probably just be one of those throwaway N64 games. You know, might have been a bit of a hidden gem on the N64. But obviously yeah. Smash Bros. ended up being one of Nintendo's most prolific probably money-making games they ever did, which is just crazy. And I'd say, I'd say with Smash Bros as well, I think, you know, you and I probably, I think we played it a few times drunk yeah. back in the day, you know, uh, on the Wii U, and I remember you actually thrashing me on that game. <laughs> but it, it, to me, it is just, it's a fighting game, party game crossover. It's just, it, all that, you know, the, the complicated moves that you generally get in fighting games are just gone yeah. in Smash Brothers. It's just a really accessible fighting game for anyone, I think. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Well, that you know, the, the smashing each other, you know, and it's yeah. just a case of one one button and the directions are your normal punches and kicks and the other button and the other directions are your special moves, you know, and then you just kind of go wild. I think it is, like you say, it's just such an easy pick up and play, but it's cool to see that insight of like what it was going to be like before, mm. you know, kind of Nintendo stepped in and said, you know, as they usually do, let's stick Mario in there or let's stick Star Fox in there. But it's pretty well, yeah, cool. But I didn't realise his channel had blown up that much. I really need to check it out. It's it's really good because in the video, he actually shares a proposal, like the mm. original proposal for what it would be. And all the basic concepts are in oh, there wow. for, for, you know, Smash Bros. So it's basically like laying out the stage, stuff with like no health bars, stuff yeah. like that, stealth exploration. It's, it's really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, there's probably some concepts that haven't been there. And I can imagine this is a title that, you know, fans have been hearing about for years and stuff and never actually seen something solid. So must be very yeah. exciting because there's lots of Smash Bro fans out there. And, um, you know, it's also 64DD as well, which was uh, uh, kind of the development unit as well. So then mm. imagine one day if a ROM of this got leaked or something. That, yeah. Well, that, that was my next point. Cause, I mean, you mentioned how Bravey's been, you know, kind of talking about these uh, inside Nintendo kind of stories. Is he brave enough to share the ROM online, though? Is, it, is that a challenge you're putting out? I don't think he will. Or, or has he got it? Has he has he just got, like, you know, the clips footage, of it? Or, or, yeah. yeah. Or has he sat there playing it? You just don't know at the moment, do we? Yeah, so it's... Uh, I've got a feeling, though, there's going to be a lot more of these kind of stories coming out of his channel. So, um, yeah, it's definitely worth subscribing if you're interested in, uh, you know, the inside story on these classic games. So um, I'll link that up and the rest of the stories. You'll find them all. You don't have to Google around. I save you the job every week. Head onto our website or just open your podcast app, theretrohour.com. So don't forget, patrons hangout coming up this Sunday. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you there. Halloween costumes are compulsory. Ravi, just saying. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll just go, I'll just come topless, and that'll scare everyone. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do. I'll freak everyone out. Um, and next, we are going to be joined by this week's special guest, reminiscing about classic gadgets, gizmos, and lots more with Peter Lee, the nostalgia nerd. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and it is time to welcome on one of our favourite guests that we've had on the podcast in the past, but actually, it's been way too long since we've caught up with this week's guest, one of our favourite content creators and authors as well. There's a fantastic YouTube channel, and I can't believe it's been so long since we had you on the show. Peter Lee, the Nostalgia Nerd. How are you doing, Peter? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Last time I think we did a dedicated episode with you was in 2017, which is amazing. That was half a decade ago. No, it is. I can't even get my head around that. It seems like a, a year, maybe two at tops. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. 
when did you start your YouTube channel, and do you remember what year that was? I, mm, I'm not really sure. I think it was around 2015, 2016. Mm. It's because I started a channel called Retrobait to start with, and I think that might have been 2014. And then I kind of moved on from that in 2015, I think. So, yeah, 2017 wouldn't have been that long after making the channel, which is, it, yeah, it's all blurred into one, really. I've got a feeling from memory you might have been hitting around 100,000 subscribers at that stage when we, when we last spoke. Obviously, your channel's way bigger now. Yeah. Um, and a bit, just kind of give us an overview of you know what, what's kind of the last half a decade been like then, as you know, making YouTube <laughs> videos and the growth of the channel. And I know it's quite a vague question, but uh, what, what, what has it been going well, on you know, since we last got up? Yeah, half, half a decade. I mean, it, it just seems like a flash. It seems like I was just in my bedroom making videos, you know, starting out a few, a few a year or so ago um it's 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 been a bit of a roller coaster so my first book came out in 2018 that was fun mm. and then it, it's kind of been a quite a bit of a blur since then we had the pandemic went to a few conventions before that and after that and it it just seems like a blink of an eye and you know here we are in 2022 and there's i've got a second book which uh, I, I can barely remember writing so <laughs> who knows well, I mean, how would you say the the retro scene has changed in that time? Because I mean, if, from my perspective, it seems like it's it's grown a lot. I mean, I even saw you on, um, you know, for people outside the UK, a show called um, Steph's Pack Lunch on mainstream TV here, talking about retro games last year. So, yeah. would you say the scene's changed quite a bit in, in the time since you started your channel? Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Um, yeah, that was middle of a pandemic, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's definitely grown. There's more content about it's definitely gone mainstream i think everywhere you look there's people talking about retro there's companies releasing releasing retro sega are now bringing out their second mega drive mini aren't they and that's in conjunction with all the other minis which have come out and yeah that that episode going on steph's pack lunch really kind of hit home how much this was getting into people's households because that is a very much mainstream TV program and I was talking about Spectrums and Commodores and it just it, I, I kind of felt out of place talking about them on normal TV but I, I guess you know everyone wants to know about it. it it has penetrated a lot of people's lives certainly more than when I started yeah because normally those shows are like recipes aren't they <laughs> travel guides and that kind of thing but I did notice that you know the people on the show that their eyes lit up when you were showing this stuff like it really ticked those nostalgia memories for them I guess yeah it really did um yeah there was li- people there just talking about recipes around me that's kind of why I felt a bit odd but Steph mm. um actually came up to me and she was like I used to have a Commodore 64 when I was younger I love it. I used to program it on it all the time. And I was like, you just, you just never know where this retro love is. Everyone seems to have a bit of it from their, their past. And, you know, they, they were all having a great time looking at the kit, playing the games. It was, it was, yeah, it was good fun. I noticed that you've been going out to um, expos and stuff again recently. I mean, is it nice to be back out there again, you know, mingling with people and meeting <laughs> fans and like-minded people? Yeah, it is. I kind of... Yeah, the pandemic was okay. I was kind of got into the zone of just being in my house and not doing very much other than making videos. That was kind of mm. an okay place to be. But it, of course, it's nice going out and meeting people again and you know, speaking to people and seeing what they've been doing. And it, it, there was one in Norwich recently, um, which was called One Life Left. And that was great because it was very much orchestrated for the retro community so it was it was checkmate amiga there there was loads of stands which were really for my tastes so that was that was great fun so yeah it's good being back out 
Yeah, I mean, I was saying to you before we started recording, I was at an Amiga event in Germany over the weekend where, you know, they sold a thousand tickets to that. And I still remember, you know, when I was kind of getting back into retro back in like 2006, 2007, there was a few retro events happening, but there might be like, you know, five guys in a church hall. <laughs> it's just, too, you know, the difference today is insane. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, a dedicated Amiga event with a thousand people, that is mm. crazy. It just seems that the Amiga is coming back to life before our eyes, which is, you know, something which I would have never have expected during its demise mm. in the late 90s. I was like, okay, we're saying bye to this. And here we are 25 years later. And it's it's good to see. I'm very happy about it. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you're recording videos at home probably last time we spoke. I mean, what, what's kind of your setup like these days? Because, I mean, you've got a dedicated space and everything now for your videos. That's that for it. Yeah, blimey. So I've had a dedicated office since... I had a small office in 2018 because I was just amassing so much stuff in my house, but I had to move out to somewhere. So I got a small office. Happened to be an office block where Stuart Ashen also had an office and did you know gaming? So we kind of... Mm got together and we were like well let's go and get an office together so we all kind of share an office in Norwich at the moment and that is the base for all my retro tech it's still not big enough so I'm looking to expand it again <laughs> this year but I need to you know it's, as soon as you start surrounding yourself with all these old machines they take up so much room so I'm kind of moving into a slightly bigger premises before the end of the year hopefully which will be much easier for filming and for displaying computers and setting things up on a more permanent basis. Yeah, I know we spoke before, I think, you know, when you're still doing it from home, you mentioned that you might get a machine in. Like, I think we, we talked about you've got a, a Commodore Plus 4 in, but then you did a video on it. Of course, you didn't have much room for stuff. You sold that on, you know, <laughs> t- so someone else could enjoy it. I mean, what about your collection now? I mean, has it grown a lot over the last half a decade and how are you managing it? Uh, then? Do, you, do you generally keep stuff now? Or? God, yeah. So whenever I see something which is a reasonable price, and I think I might make a video about that in the future, I just get it and i stick it somewhere and then i forget about it and that's half the problem because i can't find what i've got now it's it's difficult to know what to make videos about so i just want to get it all out spread it out amongst you know a bigger area and just have more space for it but I, i've got all sorts of machines i, got, I picked up a uh, lady cassette vision a few months back which you know, I, I, I didn't even know it existed a few years ago. And what is that? It's a, so you know the Japanese console, the Cassette Vision, um, mm. which was an 8-bit uh, console. This is one which is specifically aimed for girls. So it's bright pink. Right. It comes with a game where you're a princess, and it's just it comes in a little pink carry case. It's just like an intriguing artifact from the 80s. So going to do a video on that hopefully soon as well. Yeah, it's great when you pick up stuff like that that you, you just weren't expecting to find. Um, I mean, even like, you know, some dream machines. I, I know you picked up an Atari Falcon last time we spoke, and that's always kind of been on my yeah. hit list. I mean, the, the price they go for now is just insane. I mean, is there still anything that you want to add to your collection then? Any kind of um, dream machines that you're thinking, I'd just love to have one of those? I think there always is. I mean, but the, the, yeah, but you say the Atari Falcon. I remember seeing that in, on Bad Influence in the 90s, and just mm. like, I was thinking, you know, I can. I will, I will never own that machine, and having that is amazing. It's just, it's just. I, I don't know why I'm still so drawn to it. It's just, it looks like a different colored Atari ST, but it's just so desirable. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just want to make videos on machines which are interesting. So my list is pretty much anything out there which 
is interesting and i don't think i'll ever stop looking for those items nothing specific just anything which catches my eye i was at the um center for computing history in cambridge playing with Mm. their silicon graphics workstation and that's one thing i'd love to have in my collection i don't know if you've ever experienced one of those or uh whether you've got one lurking somewhere in your your storage area (laughs) i think i've got uh three actually um oh wow yeah i i think i picked of course you do (laughs) it's this weird how you come across this stuff so i picked a couple up from my dad's mate my dad used to be a computer programmer and it turned out one of his friends had a few in his loft and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take them. That'll be great. And one of them's got this massive monitor. It must be like a 24-inch CRT. And you, I couldn't even get it through the door. So that is <laughs> downstairs in the office space because it just takes up so much room. But it's just another project which I'm, I want to get into. I just haven't have found the time to do it yet. You need a strong desk to put a monitor like that, oh, I imagine. God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get some sort of reinforced scaffolding to set it up, I think. They're very cool. And I just love that era as well. And I mean, one thing I know you've been kind of covering on your channel quite a bit, it's kind of that era of the internet as well, kind of, you know, the early to mid 90s. And I did a video a couple of weeks back on Yahoo chat rooms mm. and one of our early memes as well. I mean, is there anything you kind of find intriguing or you miss about the the early days of the internet oh just so much it was such a wonderland wasn't it of exploration you went from being able to go to the library for information and talk to your friends and read magazines to just having everything at your fingertips and it just it, it was a new frontier there were people talking about conspiracies there was people in chat rooms talking all sorts of nonsense you could go anywhere on any site and you know, find out any information. And then and then there was all this stuff popping up with people, you know, talking about different things you never knew existed and new sites and these new worlds you could enter and text adventures. It, everything about the early internet, I miss deeply. I know we've still got the internet. It just doesn't, I think it's obviously lost its shine and it's, mm. it's, it's, it's hard to, to get that back, I think, which is, it's, it's, a, it's a time in history which we'll never experience again, I think. Yeah, and I think it was just the fact that you would actually go online often without any purpose. And, you know, particularly when you showed the, the old Yahoo homepage on your video, I remember sitting there, clicking on the computing section and just you know, surfing the web, yeah. as we call it, which now it seems like you've got a destination, it's a function you want to get on, you want to book a holiday, you want to check your social media. That kind of experience of sitting there and just kind of browsing and coming across sites and stuff like web rings and that yeah, kind of thing, yeah. that that exploration, I feel, kind of has gone a bit yeah. now. Because I, I used, um, I could never get my dad to sign up to a proper internet service provider. So I used a service called Extreme Internet, where you could just connect up and then pay eight. That sounds so 90s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You pay eight p per minute, and you connect up. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be on this long. It'll be fine. No one's going to know. And then you know, you go down these rabbit holes and finding out all sorts of information. I think I went through this stage of finding all the information about the aliens films, and I download all the scripts off the internet and all the pictures and all the behind the scenes information. And then before you know it, my dad's walking in with a phone bill saying, "You've just racked up a phone bill for four hundred quid." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> I'm so sorry." <laughs> guess my modem's going now then yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i didn't quite use the internet as much after that i had to go to friends houses but um it, it kind of convinced him that getting a proper free serve contract was the the best way to go about it at least and i think maybe that that the scarcity of it as well it, it kind of made it feel more special because we had um i remember we got like 
after one summer, probably summer 95, 96, coming back to school and going into the library and all of a sudden they had like four PCs set up on the internet. And I remember seeing this big sign, you know, internet access, you can book an hour by going to the, the desk, yeah. you know, yeah. book it in the diary and then you'd literally get 16 minutes. But I would go on there and if I found a web page I'd find really interesting or an article, I'd save the HTML file to a floppy disk oh, yeah. and then take it home for offline reading, yeah, yeah. which just sounds bizarre today. <laughs> yeah, I remember going in my uh, IT teacher's office at school and I was like, can I just download some guitar tabs? And I'd end up downloading the entire site. And yeah, you'd save them as a local file, wouldn't you? And then you'd just take yeah. it home and just ex- explore it off, off your disk. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that. It shows how small websites were back then as well compared to today. Wow. Oh, God, yeah. How many floppies would it take to fit Facebook on? Well, that's it, isn't it? You can't even download <laughs> one page without it, you know, taking a, a gigabyte or something crazy. Well, I mean, talking of things you've been covering on your channel as well, I mean, you've been kind of deep diving into hacking and TV broadcast jacking and stuff like that as mm. well. I mean, how have you kind of found these subjects and is that an area you'd like to explore more? Uh, yeah, I just kind of, I've always followed what I'm interested in at the time and as long as it's connected to retro technology, I think it's fair game. And I've always, you know, I did the Doddleston messages last year, which was a really interesting look at this guy who owned a BBC micro in the eighties. And he suddenly said he was able to speak to someone from the 16th century through it. And that was, uh, that went down really well. I thought, yeah, this is quite interesting. I enjoy making these videos. So I'll make a video about Max, the Max Headroom incident, which is a fascinating, it's another creepy tale. Anything which is slightly creepy, I'm kind of into it. And it was, you know, this guy just appearing on TV one day dressed as Max Headroom and just talking utter nonsense. It's just like, it's the mystery behind it. Who is it? Why did it happen? And I just wanted to go down that rabbit hole. And, you know, it took me a while, but I think it was, I think it turned out okay. It was, it was, it was an enjoyable video to make at least. Yeah. Cause I remember hearing about that years ago. Yeah. Um, but I always heard it as like, you know, yeah, an unsolved mystery. But actually in your video, you do kind of go down a bit of a rabbit hole and explore kind of who it could be as well. So it must have been quite a bit of research went yeah. into finding out that story there's all these pockets on the internet and it's just so easy to get sucked in and that's what i really enjoy just finding a subject which has so much information a lot of it is hidden it's like a detective game you know whether i'm talking about old computers or some sort of mystery like that as long as there's a lot to research then that is absolutely fascinating to me and what kind of resources do you use then i mean is it stuff like e1archive.org are you looking at like old news groups that kind of thing what, what kind of your main go-to place so archive.org is yeah, that's one of the greatest things on the internet. The, the, the foresight they had to start saving websites back in the mid-90s is incredible. And without that, mm. I don't think my channel would be able to exist because you can visit so many websites, so many news stories. Um, it's it's an absolute goldmine. But I also use stuff like uh, the New York Times Times Machine. So you can go back to the New York Times newspaper from you know the past 100 years. And if I need to refine a video and find out some more information i can just search for microsoft in the 80s or something and find all the stories which are relevant to what i'm writing about and you, you gleam a lot of information from that which you wouldn't otherwise find in the internet in normal text form yeah and i think it just seems to be there's a lot of these services popping up now that are making it easier i was looking um we're actually talking in our news segment earlier in the show 
about this um, new site, um, Discmaster, which I don't know if you've heard about this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a big search engine for old CD-ROMs and utility discs. Oh, nice. You know, all, yeah, I mean, I've got about 8,000 CD-ROMs archived, and you can search through them all wow. by file name and type, and admittedly a lot of not non-safer work content on there. Probably, you know, <laughs> look at it in the privacy of your own home. Um, but it just seems like, yeah, it, I love the fact that people are making these efforts to preserve this stuff and realising how important it is. Yeah, that, that reminds me of whenever you opened an Amiga magazine, you'd find the, the CD page, and there was like a supplier yeah. selling all these CD-ROM was full of random stuff and you'd be like 6,000 utilities and you'd be like what could that's like enough to keep me set up for life on there it's just like (laughs) an absolute goldmine on one CD so I haven't heard of that site but I am going on it as soon as I get off this call I'll be honest that sounds amazing yeah, it's just launched and it kind of... So I think a lot of that stuff as well, I mean, the old CD-ROMs, I remember buying, you're talking about like conspiracy theorists and stuff like that. I remember getting a, an Area 51 CD-ROM yeah. talking about, you know, UFO sightings yeah. and just spending hours on that and thinking, I, I'm, I could read this for the rest of my life and not get through it all. Yeah, it's like it a, just felt so big, didn't it? It's an entire world, isn't it? Compared to what we were used yeah. to with a floppy disk. I used to order PD floppy disks, which would have like the backstory of Red Dwarf on it or something like that. And that was fascinating. And I'd spend hours on that. So a CD-ROM just blew my mind. I think, you know, today, because the internet is, we've got so much information, I think it's a bit overwhelming. And we were Mm. talking about the early internet. That was new, but at least there were specific places to go and there there weren't search engines which could unveil everything to you. So I think not being overwhelmed by information was part of what made it so fun back then. Is it ever a challenge thinking of video ideas after, you know, doing YouTube for so long? Do you have like a list of ideas in advance or you're over there just thinking, God, what, what can I talk about this week? I've got a spreadsheet with, it must be a thousand, two thousand ideas on, which I've been building since 2015. And talking about, about being overwhelmed, but the problem isn't finding ideas. It's just looking through that list and working out what to do. I can stare at that list for hours sometimes and not conclude what video to make next and you know i've got videos on there which i thought of so long ago and i really want to do but because i've delayed them for so long someone else will make them on youtube and i'm like ah oh god i missed my chance now it's just it's just it's it's annoying it's but it's also useful just having this repository i think i've got so much i want to talk about but i don't think i could ever run out of ideas well i've been playing around with um zip drives recently and you know setting that up on my pentium one and you know just kind of using them and enjoying the experience i mean is there any kind of retro tech that you're personally really into right now then that you've been using lately ah i so i kind of want to get back into the atari Lynx. i just i love that console so much so i i bought one recently with the mcwill screen mod which you know it's just Mm. such a bright screen and you can plug it into vga as well and it, the, the, it was so advanced for its time, the Lynx, but the screen on it was crap. So to be able to play those 16-bit games with a good screen now, is, is it shows the full potential of the machine. And I don't think we realised how powerful it was, or you know, w- w- what we had in our hands back then. I think the Lynx should have sold way better than it did, and I'm proper yeah. into that at the moment. It's such a good console. It's weird, because I remember seeing that when it came out and thinking, why would anybody want a Game Boy when you've got this yeah. machine that's in colour. That's right. But I remember playing Zybots. Tetris, I guess, is the answer. Oh, well, yeah, te- <laughs> yeah, Tetris, yeah, kind of, I think Tetris and Battery Life were the things which kind yeah. of 
garnered the appeal. Um, but I remember playing Zybots on the Lynx, and it was like, this is almost the same as the arcade version. Why aren't people running out in droves to to get hold of this? You know, it's I, I talk about these both of these new things in my in my new book because it's just that rivalry between the Game Boy and the Lynx was just. Mm. I, I, I didn't understand it. In, with hindsight, fine. But at the time, no. Yeah, you talked about Bad Influence before, which was a, a gaming or computer show as well for, for kids here in Britain in the, in the early 90s. I always remember a feature they did about handhelds and kind of how long you would get. And I think um, they were showing battery life on the links and the game gear was something like 40 minutes. I think it would reach them. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember speaking to uh, Violet Berlin recently about the, what was that other console? Was it the Supervision? Yes. Yeah. And and they, I could never work out why they promoted that so much on Bad Influence. And she was like, they told us to do it. They were like, we need this marketed. And I think I think they paid them to just promote the hell out of it. And right. it didn't ever garner much interest in the UK because it was kind of like a, a crap version of a Game Boy. But yeah, I was always fascinated by the, the handhelds they had on back then, especially because you couldn't ever really see what was going on on the screen, on the TV. It was even worse. Well, you mentioned about you know your new book as well, but you did actually have um, another book previously, Retrotech Computer Consoles and Games, and that was very well received. I mean, why did you want to move into writing books as well as YouTube? Um, so I, it was more, I guess, the, the publisher came to me and they were like, can you write a book for us? And I hadn't really thought about it before that point. And I was like, sure, I will give that a go. That sounds like something I'd be willing to do. And, you know, it's given I'm writing scripts all the time, it just felt like a, an easy move to make to get into writing a book. How did you find the process then? Was it a big challenge? Did you kind of know, know what you're letting yourself in for? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a very organised person. So I had about a year to write that one. And it kind of ended up with me in the last two months panicking and being like okay i need to start writing this book now and i just kind of whizzed through it quite quickly actually um and it, it was quite a, a therapeutic process just to get all this information on paper about this technology which you know it would take me years to talk about it all in videos and so just to get it all out into a concise little little book it was it was nice i enjoyed it i think as well the process of having something tangible as well because i mean we would do YouTube videos and we do podcasts, but it kind of feels like they they don't really exist. They're just there yeah. in some server, and one day someone might delete them and they're gone forever. But you get it down on paper, it, you know, it, it's a physical yeah. manifestation of this thing that we love, isn't it? And we do. It, it is so much more fulfilling having something to hold in your hand. I mean, you can w mm. watch stuff on the internet all day, but yeah, it, the physicality of it is is I will never quite get over it. being able to flick through it and just look at each page is just. Uh, yeah, is is a very nice thing to have done. I'm uh, very proud of it. Well, speaking of books, I mean, we are going to be talking about your, your new book now, your second book that's just come out, mm -hmm. Gadgets, Gizmos and Gimmicks, A Potted History of Personal Tech. So uh, give us a kind of spiel then. Tell us about this book. Then. What's the idea behind it? So the idea behind this book, it, it kind of started off as I wanted to talk about all the gadgets from the past, which always fascinated me, but not many people cover, you know, all the stuff which we would carry around and use on a kind of daily basis, uh, you know, stuff like the Walkman, CD players, handheld LCD games, watches, nothing that you, you couldn't make a book about one of these items really, but you know, altogether they, they made up our lives essentially. And I, I started I thought I'd go back to the 50s and, and, and write onwards from there and just cover all the main pieces of tech, which 
people found useful. And what I ended up realizing was all the tech I was writing about really is now just contained in our mobile phones. So mm. it's it's just really a book about all the tech we used to have. But we now just have, you know, in our in our pockets on one device. Well, what are some of the most important tech devices that shaped your early history, would you say? Any, any that spring to mind? Um, so, I mean, I've got a book here, which is always handy. But, but I mean, just, you know, I, I had a Walkman from a, from a young age. It was just crazy being able to just stick headphones on and listen to music out and about. Uh, I had Tiger handheld consoles where I couldn't afford a Game Boy, which somehow would amuse me for hours in the playgrounds. You know, I'm not sure how that happened. Um, there was something called a Questron pen where you could, you'd get books and you'd use it to point out correct answers in this activity book, which I had at a young age. And that always fascinated me because it was, it was this pen, which it somehow knew what the right answer in a book was and provided you with mm. audio feedback on it. You know, that kind of sealed my love for tech going forward. So, you know, things like that, it just, it, they stand out in my mind and I wanted to get them on paper. One of the coolest bits of tech I remember as a kid, and maybe this is my slightly mischievous mind. Do you remember those um, infrared watches that would change the TV channel? Yeah, yeah. So that 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 is in this book actually. Um, well, I, I mention it at least. I'm not sure if the actual watches, but um, my my mate Michael had one, and he actually managed to get it programmed for his uncle's Peugeot 405, so he could use it to unlock oh, wow. the central locking on his car. I was, like, I was like, how do you do that with a watch? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that, I think the furthest my friends got was uh, changing the TV channel while watching, you know, those boring educational yeah. shows at school. But, no, that's cool <laughs> enough. But I mean, my uncle was so so impressed, but he, his uncle was so impressed by it that um, he, he actually bought one for himself and he just used that to unlock his car going forward. It's just... Oh, wow. Yeah. Don't, don't even need the key. No, it's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> What are some of the um, the key devices that you cover then, and how did they change our lives? I mean, you mentioned the Walkman has been a, an example there. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine the world pre-Walkman. You know, yeah. the fact that we couldn't have music in our pocket, what a revolution that was. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that definitely stands out. But, I mean, I before that, I start talking about things like, so we've got the Sinclair Micromatic, which was like a tiny portable radio, which kind of kick-started the whole portable radio sensation. Um, and then... Obviously, move on to calculators like the Canon Pocketronic, which defined the whole kind of era of programmable calculators and kind of paved the way for personal computers as well. You've got stuff like uh, the Speak and Spell, which was a toy, but, you know, arguably still quite an important gadget because it was the first kind of thing which spoke to people and had that that, that memorable robotic voice, which instilled mm. the 80s into so many people um and then there's like the polaroid 600 you know which could print out photos on the go it's it's mainly tech which was just it, was, it seemed quite revolutionary at the time and so either that or it was a must-have item so motorola bravo pager for example which was yeah a, a, a fascinating piece of kit because it kind of covered a very specific era of time where mobile phones weren't really you know too expensive too bulky and so you'd have this little device which just people could call up and ping and then you could find a payphone and call someone back just a cheaper way to have wireless communication the atari Lynx is obviously in there the scion series 3 which was a little handheld computer which i always 
wanted, even though I, you know, it was mainly spreadsheets and word processing, but it was just so fascinating to have all that office kit in such a small, a small case. Talk. Yeah, I, I guess that was the difference then as well. The fact that we, because we weren't online all the time. I, rem- I remember seeing the, the Apple Newton. Yeah. In um in Staples and or Ryman, it might have been. Yeah, just being blown away that it's a computer you can put in your bag and you can carry it around with you. It just seemed like I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? I mean, you, you didn't even need to be online. You could just occupy yourself with these little electronic devices. Even the, I used to have like a little data bank where I would just type people's names in and and you know, write little tiny short stories on it. And that would keep me amused for hours. I don't know. Yeah. Looking back, it seems kind of crazy, but at the time I loved it. Just scrolling through your, your contacts list. Yeah. <laughs> French and David. Yeah, yeah. Just going through, looking at my auntie's number, you know, my uncle. It's like, this is cool. Is this ever anything you find weird? Because I do that, you know, things from our childhood are now museum pieces. Yeah. 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 yeah always. Yeah. It, it, it seems such a short time. I go and it always kind of it's quite jarring when I go into a, a museum and just see you know like the Scion series three or a, a talk boy just sitting there or even a Tamagotchi you know I remember playing with that in the playground mm. and just that felt so new and different to everything else and people talk about them in you know documentaries now as a defining period of the 90s it's just it is weird yeah I don't think I can ever get over that yeah I was at a show over in um Norway a couple of months ago and they had a lot of consoles out and stuff but um yeah the Commodore Plus 4 was my first machine they had a really nice example of that but it was locked away in a display cabinet you know like it was a yeah, proper <laughs> antique yeah and I was like wow yeah <laughs> yeah it's, you often get signs on stuff don't you saying don't touch fragile it's like yeah. I would yeah. hammer the keys on that spectrum to pieces when I was in the 80s it's yeah, no regard for its condition or anything zero yeah absolutely zero <laughs> Well, there are any any devices in the book that you cover that were meant to change the world, but didn't. I mean, we mentioned you know the Newton there as an example. Uh, so I covered the Sinclair C five because that you know that was Clive Sinclair's vision of the future of personal transport. So that it's, it's quite a big thing to be classed as a personal gadget, but you know you carried it, you went around with it, and it was designed to be smaller and compact. So everything he did was in that sort of vein, and it may not have ended up in a lot of people's homes or drives, but it was just a fascinating era. And certainly if you didn't have one, you knew about it. And for me, that is a defining gadget as well. And I wonder as well if that was just the wrong time. Because I mean, now, you know, 40 years later almost, it's uh, electric vehicles are all the rage. You know, we're all talking about them at the the moment. Maybe some of these devices were just released in the wrong era. Uh, Yeah, totally. I I think Clive Sinclair especially was well ahead of his time and some things landed and some things didn't. If you released his C5 now, I think it would go down pretty well. You know, back then it was such an alien concept in a world of gas guzzling cars and trucks. Um, Yeah, also things like the Amstrad NC100 notepad is in the book, which was... It's the most powerful Z80-based laptop, really, uh, ever made. And it was small and compact, and it did so much. But it was in that sort of era where, you know, monochrome LCD screens were on the way out and proper laptops were on the way in. And it never really hit home, even though I think it's a a great piece of kit. One that really impressed me as a kid, I remember walking into... um bt british telecom when they had high street stores yeah back in the early oh, yeah. 90s with my dad and this would have been maybe 92 93 and they had 
it must have been the first video phone they had. It was a landline phone. Colour, actually, I think Techmoan did a video about these. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad's standing at the other end of the shop. And maybe in the other end, you know, we call each other and see each other on this really badly pixelated <laughs> little tiny, maybe two-inch screen, but thinking, wow, you know, video phone, that always felt like something out of science fiction back then. Yeah. So I, the Amstrad emailer is in this book as well, because that was mm. the one which stands out. And although BT did it earlier, uh, Amstrad kind of pushed it heavily. And it, 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 I think it was, it was the second version that had Spectrum games on it as well. So, you know, yes. e- even then, we had retro stuff in, what, 2000, I think that came out? And it was it's, it shows that it's always been with us, even early on. So I always think old gadgets, they're somewhat a little bit tragic because they're so essential to our existence. I mean, even, you know, you get a new phone and then a year or two years later, you get a new one. The old one gets thrown in a drawer mm. and forgotten about, which you know, always makes me a bit sad because this, this thing was such a big part of our lives for a year or two. I mean, do you think it's important to remind people of, the, of their role in our lives and what they had? Or phones specifically? Or just general gadgets? Yeah, so, they're kind of I mean, you know, discarded. I, I think it's important to remind people about uh, the gadgets of the past because they, they were having them as standalone devices. They were kind of more of a talking point. You know, you'd walk into a room and people would be like, oh, look, look, you're a Walkman. That's pretty cool. It's got a rewind button. You know, mine's only got fast forward. And it would become like a talking point. And you could take your cassette out and you could swap cassettes or you could you could get out your Tamagotchi and that was a focal point. Or, you know, you could pull out a, a laser pointer and say, you know, say, look, <laughs> look at this cool piece of tech. I can just write my name on the wall or you know it's just everything's so similar now we've got our little slabs of foam which it's not you get apple and we've got google phones but there's not much between them and it kind of detracts from a piece of personality so i think it's useful to remind people of how important this tech was and what a kind of statement it made and how it connected with you and i don't think we should lose that you know i I even miss the early nokia phones there's a few in this book as well like the nokia 8110 and nokia 9000 which just looked so cool it was after google them because they didn't have memorable names at all did they no 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 no. you're like what which one is that exactly yeah but but they they were just they had a bit of your personality in them in the way they were styled and the functions they had. And we just don't, we don't have that anymore. I think it's a bit sad. Yeah. Cause I got, you're talking about Nokia's. I'm looking at yeah, the Nokia 7650. That was my first camera phone. Oh, was that the little one? That the was, little, the this was a slide out one. It had like a, a keypad underneath. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah. And you, you'd pull the bottom out. So it was a bit like a, a slide out phone, but it was, I was looking now, it celebrated its 20th birthday this summer. Oh my which, God. Makes me feel you know, yeah. crazy that it was that long ago. <laughs> I remember when uh, the first Apple iPhones came out and Nokia were doing phones, which were so much more powerful. And I, it, again, I had a bit of a Lynx Game Boy moment. I was like, why are people buying an iPhone, which is underpowered? It has a you know one megapixel, three megapixel camera. And then Nokia was doing this thing with like a nine megapixel camera and all these functions and power. And, you know, they just, Apple just happened to nail the style and they happened to nail the ease of use. And that was something yeah. that was often overlooked from my perspective, at least. I agree. I think I think I had a Nokia N95, I think Vassal, was my final yeah. one I had. Yeah. And it had so much in there. It had an MP3 player on board. It had um, WAP internet. I think it could even browse real websites yeah. you know, with a little kind of joystick and stuff. But it just, what even though all the, the power was packed in there, 
it was just cumbersome to use, the user interface. And I think that's where Apple came along and just really nailed that in 2007, didn't they? It's, it was a game changer. Yeah, I think Nokia was using, what, Symbian back then? And it was just yeah. getting clunkier and clunkier as they tried to pack more in. Yeah, Apple did, good, did a good job. Well, I remember getting an iPhone from America. I got it imported about six months before oh, wow. I came out here. I bought it on eBay. And I remember the first time I went into a bar and a guy saw me with it and he's like, Oh my God, is that one of the, the Apple phones? It blew his mind. And then a couple of weeks later, I was in a shop and using it. And another guy who'd also imported one into the UK, right. we were like, suddenly became mates because we both had iPhones. You know, it was like such a weird thing to think of now, yeah. you know, how ubiquitous they are and everywhere. But that, that's the thing, isn't it? Because Apple iPhones were new back then. It was kind of, yeah. it's the same as all the gadgets we had before. If you saw someone with you know, the same Walkman as you or something, you know, obviously yeah, with a Game Boy, you'd be like, oh, hello, mate. You know, let, let, let's chat. And now everyone's got the same device. It's become so common that it's not exciting anymore. That's the thing. And I think you've probably seen that photo as well, which is like a guy holding a camcorder and he's got a Walkman hanging off his side and he's got a laptop near him yeah. and a, a hi-fi and, a, and all that's in, in your phone now in your pocket. Yep. But it just seems somehow, yeah, not as exciting now. I don't know yeah. why. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, now it's so easy, I guess. It's, it's, that's right. I, 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 that's kind of what influenced this book, actually. I remember seeing that image and thinking that is... That, that kid looks incredible. He is my dream. He's got so much tech on him. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a shame we lost all that. So this, this book is just celebrating all that tech, which we've basically lost. You mentioned about gaming as well and uh, talking about mobile phones and gaming where they're crossed over. Does the N-Gage get a mention in yes, there? Yes, yes, it does. That was a very defining oh. thing, wasn't it? Because it could have been, <laughs> could have been such a... A, a good thing but Nokia made such weird decisions like like deciding to have the screen as portrait which made mm. sense because they were moving across from phones and phones had a portrait screen so they should have a portrait screen but it didn't fit in with game consoles and they, they had troubles I wish it had been you know better I wish it had done better but it's still a fascinating piece of our past I remember seeing Tomb Raider running on that and being yeah. quite blown away that it could run that. I remember, yeah, I remember seeing Doom on it. I was like, this is pretty mm. impressive, you know, little, little device. Yeah. And ahead of its time, because we all play games on our phones today, and the fact that we're doing that in the early to mid-2000s, I guess. Yeah, we do. Yeah, again, just- I, but I, I kind of miss the, the tactile feedback of the buttons, you know, we've mm. got touchscreens, and it's just like stabbing your thumb into a bit of <laughs> on your desk, isn't it? There's nothing there. Well, here's a question. I mean, you talked about, you know, the fact that we're all online and stuff today. I mean, do you think there's still an advantage to a gadget that isn't connected to the, to the internet and kind of is free of distraction in 2022? Yeah, I think they're making a bit of a comeback. Um, stuff like there's little, the little, I can't remember what it's called. There's like a typewriter where you just, you just write on it and it's not connected to anything and it's purely for writing distraction free. And stuff like the remarkable tablet where you just make notes on it without the distraction of everything you get on a tablet, you know, which can easily allow you to procrastinate. I think there's definitely room for those things in the right places. But in in the wider world, people are so used to the internet now, it, you couldn't really take it away. It would be like, you know, removing payphones in the 80s. People would be like, how can I do anything? I can't talk to anyone. It's quite curious to me that there seems to be a, a definite resurgence in physical media lately and I saw a graph the other day on a music website and apparently CDs had their biggest year mm. of annual sales last year than they've had since like 2010 or something it was in over a decade yeah I mean and I know that cassette tapes now seem to be making a, a revival yeah, you know, definitely. I saw that 
yeah, little little mix of someone put out their last album on cassette or something. It's it's really bizarre. There's nothing better than getting like a like a brightly coloured translucent cassette in my mind. You, you, it's just mm. you, the physicality of it is something people are missing. I think, and you get that and you think, oh, I can clonk this into my. I've, I've got like a car from the nineties, and I can yeah, you know, I get a cassette, I clonk it into the tape uh, player, and it's just it feels nicer. It's like an experience mm. of listening to music. It's more. I'm choosing to do this rather than letting an algorithm decide what I want to listen to. And just, you know, it's just a bit, it's a bit, yeah, isn't it? These, you know, I prefer the choices and the physicalness we had before. Do you think there's a bit of that in there, that the freedom of your in control? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. So many things are decided for us, even, you know, Netflix and stuff like that. They will decide what to recommend to you and you'll pick one of those programs. Whereas before we just, we've discovered stuff ourselves or we spoke to people and got recommendations and they'd say, Oh, buy this album or try this game. And now we're kind of relying on algorithms, which have taken away the, the, the social aspect of it. It just, it's, it's not as much fun anymore. Um, I think my kids have recognized this because they are both into CDs and tapes and they have a little oh, wow. collection of CDs. They have a CD player and it's just it's just nicer because they get to pick it and they get control over it. That's really cool. That I was going to ask that actually whether you think kids of today will kind of you know find older gadgets engaging. I mean, how do your kids kind of find your your collection? Do they look at it with curiosity? And so they you know they love it. They I think that's I'm not sure whether this is the reason they've gone down the route of choosing older mediums of listening to music or not, but they they're fascinated by it they're fascinated by the simplicity of it you know just firing up a computer and just having one game to go and there's no choice there you load up a game and and that's it because if you're playing like a spectrum you're not going to swap games every few minutes are you because you have to wait the entire day for it to load so you're kind of committed once you've got something in and i I think they find that enthralling in a way um it's, it's nice to see as well it just keeps them away from the the robotic nature of the internet i think yeah because i got um an old vhs player of my uncle recently because he um he had a wedding tape of his yeah. that he wanted transferring to digital so he gave me his old vcr i mean i threw mine out probably 10 years ago and all my videotapes um and then i enjoyed the process of putting a tape in yeah. there and it just it felt so nostalgic and since then i mean i went on ebay that night and i bought robocop on vhs <laughs> and <laughs> sat down and watched that you know the weekend on, on my little crt screen with some popcorn <laughs> but it felt great because you know i wasn't there looking at instant messengers at the same time yeah. looking at, i was really engaged with it you know it was just me in the movie yes yeah, it's, it's so low quality but it's in a way mm. that's so much more endearing and yeah i think yeah because you've inserted the tape you feel much more connected to what you're doing like it's so easy to just zone out if you've choose something off a service a streaming service whereas you've you've made the decision to put a tape in you've committed and you're gonna sit down and enjoy it thoroughly rather than yeah doing something else like you say and getting distracted well in your book then i mean do you kind of cover some of your personal history in there and have you kind of got any uh memorable or maybe funny gadget related stories from your personal life um you know so i, I in the book i talk about my bum bag, which I used to carry around, which used to be packed full of essential items. Um, and one of those pieces of kit was the Spytech binoculars. Do you remember Spytech? They had like a range of... Yes, I do. Yeah, they yes. had like a motion <laughs> sensor and like a fake rock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I, I had a pair of Spytech binoculars and they were they were great. I could just you know, stroll around with these little things in my pocket and then just stare at people at a distance, which, you know, looking back is a bit weird. <laughs> but, but 
I felt like a spy and it, it was fun. It was a fun time of having the, these gadgets. I mean, looking back, they are no different to the National Trust binoculars you get, you know, from every National Trust place, but they've just been painted black and they've got a spy on them, which is quite cool, I guess. <laughs> they felt so cool though, didn't they? They felt awesome as a kid. Did. Yeah. Yeah. And a little spy camera as well, a little 110 film spy camera where the pictures would be awful, but you know, you were you were a spy when you were doing it. So it's just it's good memories. You mentioned spy gadgets, and I remember them being such a big deal back then. I mean, that could be a book in itself, I think, spy gadgets. Oh, yeah, imagine that. It's, it's, yeah, there was a whole world of it, wasn't there? I mean, spy tech a brand alone had so much stuff. There was like a fake passport and fake book. And my mate had a pair of rear view glasses that you could see, had mirrors down the side, so you could see who was behind you. I had the Usborne Detective's Guide and the Usborne Spy's Guidebook. It was just such a, a huge thing. I remember looking in the, spy, the Detective's Guide and I wanted the desk set up. They had so much. They had this detective sitting behind a desk with a phone and files. I just wanted a filing cabinet and a phone. <laughs> and it's just, it seems like a weird kind of goal to have, but I, just, I wanted that more than anything in the world. It just proves that, that, you know, gadgets and stuff can take you into a whole other world as well. And I mean, yeah. the fact that we mentioned about, you know, cassettes and that kind of thing coming back. I mean, are there any gadgets from the past you'd like to see making a return and maybe having a bit of a modern update? Um, definitely not for Furby, because that's the freakiest thing I've ever oh, yeah. seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but stuff like the Talk Boy, I'd like to see a lot of the toys we had, which were, were featured in movies, I'd like to see come back. Because... People don't really record sound anymore, do they? We're always recording video and we're always recording, we're, we're taking pictures, but we used to record so much sound in the 90s. And yeah. when you, I found a collection of my old tapes um, a couple, a few few months back, and it's just me pretending to be a radio presenter, or it's, it's me recording my, me and my brother messing out. And it kind of gives you an insight into the past, which you, you, I don't think you get with video. I think it sparks the imagination. It leaves, it leaves more to explore because there's so much, there's so much in sound that we miss. So anything to do with sound, I'm for it. I love the talk boy from Home Alone. You mentioned that as well. My, my wife loves Home Alone too, in particular. Yeah. I remember trying to find a one on eBay a couple of years ago, but I think the price was like thought about five hundred pounds for a box one. I was like, whoa. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, yeah. I, I had to find one for this book, and and I ended up buying a translucent one because they were a bit cheaper, and I think they looked mm. cooler. Um, but yeah, the the original ones uh, massively priced, and interestingly, the the first one they brought out it didn't have all the functionality of the one in the movie. It didn't have like the slowdown function and speed up function. Oh, wow. So they released a deluxe version the next year, which then sold a lot better. But the first one was just like a kind of bog standard dictaphone. So you couldn't even pretend to be your dad down the phone no. to commit credit card fraud on it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, Pete, I mean, this sounds like an incredible book, and you know, right up my street. Um, gadgets, gizmos, and gimmicks: a potted history of personal tech. Um, how can people get hold of the book? What's the best way? Uh, so you can get it at your local bookshop, which I'd always recommend, especially if it's an independent one. You can always get it off Amazon, of course. You know, uh, just type in "nostalgia nerds, gadgets, gizmos, and gimmicks" into Google and take your pick. Wonderful. What have you got planned next? Then anything else on the horizon? Ah, uh, next, next. So. There's, there's, there's some exciting stuff on the horizon, which I don't want to talk about just yet, but it's going to be mm. kind of uh, based in there's something happening in Norwich, which I'm quite excited about, which I will unveil in the coming weeks, depending on when this comes out. 
Well, we'll get you back on to talk about it. It sounds exciting. I'd love to, yeah. Wonderful. Well, Peter, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We won't leave it as long next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on. Thanks very much. Bye.